Matthew chapter 19, verses 8 and 5. I've titled this Marriage and Divorce Part 2 and Jesus with Children. Those really are not separate because children are the product of marriage, and they should be. So it'll come pretty automatically as we get into the, uh, the text. Last week, Jesus and his disciples with great multitudes were traveling along the east side of the Jordan River in the land of Perea, going from the Galilee region southward towards Judea and Jerusalem. With them, of course, were the multitudes and some Pharisees who wanted to trap Jesus in some way in order to find fault and bring charges against him, as we saw in verse 3 of this chapter. I'll read it again. Matthew 19, verse 3. We read, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And there it is. Their question to test Jesus, aimed to target and entrap him. As we discussed last week, there are two quite opposite schools of interpretation of one particular Old Testament verse. It was the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verse 1. And just to re refresh us, I'll read that verse. If you have your, your cross-reference sheets, uh, it's the second one on that sheet. Moses said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so this is God speaking, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. It's that verse. One school was led by Rabbi Shammai, and the other by Rabbi Hillel, both very well-known, very highly respected rabbis. One was very strict, allowing divorce only under the strictest understanding of the word uncleanness in the Deuteronomy verse, while the other school held that uncleanness could mean just about anything that the husband wanted it to mean in order to get his way. I'm afraid that happens to be a human habit, even among so-called believers today. People who always want to twist the Bible to make it say what they want it to say instead of what God actually says. One of my missions in life, by the way, is to make sure that when I teach Scripture, I do the very best that I can to teach what 
I know God is saying, regardless of what I think or what I believe or how I feel about it. My job is to reflect God's word to you, not mine. If I'm going to give you my opinion, I will and I have told you. I said, my thoughts on this or my opinion is that so-and-so. So you won't mistake <laughs> the, the opinion of a fallen sinner with our perfect God. So, in response to their dishonest question, Jesus didn't focus on divorce as they wanted him to do, but instead he led them to Scripture and what it says about marriage, what God says about marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 to 8, we read this. He answered and said to them, Have you not read? And that very statement was an insult because they were supposed to be experts in the law. He said, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning, that would be God, made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. So then, Jesus goes on, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. I think we've all heard it said, what God has joined together, let man not put asunder, or something like that. I think that's how the old King James says it. I like the, I like the visual of that. Then the Pharisees said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. Now, as we mentioned last week, these experts in the law incorrectly and I believe quite conveniently thought that God commanded divorce wherever there was some kind of uncleanness. One rabbinic saying of the day, and <laughs> it's outrageous. One rabbinic saying of that day said, quote, if a man has a bad wife, it is his religious duty to divorce her. If a man has a bad wife, it is his religious duty to divorce her. I've often wondered if they turn that around. If a wife has a bad husband, is it her religious duty to divorce him? They don't do that. Very, very male-dominated sexist culture. 
what arrogant hubris taking their ignorance of the law and of God to mean the exact opposite of what God intends. We see a lot of that today. Of course, Jesus explained the difference between command and permitted because, hear me, God never commands divorce though he does reluctantly permit it. In the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 2, verse 16 tells us, the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. It's pretty clear. It's kind of hard to misinterpret that one. He hates it even while he permits it under very strict, rigid circumstances, he still hates it. You see, the Pharisees and many Jewish men wanted to believe that Moses was promoting divorce, while the fact is that he was attempting to control and restrict it, to limit it in order to honor and obey Yahweh's original plan and purpose for marriage. It was as though Jesus said to these Pharisees, okay guys, here is the ideal biblical godly marriage. And here is what God just allows when your human sinfulness and hardness of heart has made the ideal unobtainable. So God bends a little bit to make room for the sinfulness of man, as he does many times. We stopped at that point last week, but we'll continue now and we'll back up to the beginning of verse 8. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, comma, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. The word Jesus used in the Greek for sexual immorality is pornea. That's where we get the word pornography from. And its meaning, I looked it up in several lexicons and dictionaries and kind of combined what I found. That word that Jesus used means immorality, adultery, fornication, incest, homosexuality, lesbianism, intercourse with animals, with children, with other close relatives, intercourse with the dead, and similar abominations. And unfortunately, all of those were then and are now quite common. 
What's interesting is that the people that use that word never even dreamed of things like we're seeing today with transgenderism, with people having their children mutilated. But I have no doubt that that fits under this description. As we saw last week, the Hebrew term translated uncleanness, which is erva, means much the same as pornea, but Jesus gives it a much more specific meaning. And could God the Son do anything else but to honor the sacred covenant that marriage is supposed to be? Unfortunately, our culture has gone down the same path from honoring marriage as sacred to having so-called no-fault divorce to now many couples just cohabit with fornication for years and even having children without even considering marriage. Sexual immorality has become a way of life, surpassing sacred marriage as the norm in our society. In fact, sexual immorality has become the rule, and marriage is being debased and laughed at. So our Lord refused to side with either of the opposing rabbinic schools, but instead he goes straight to Scripture and further clarifies the meaning of uncleanness to specifically mean sexual immorality which is, as we said, more than just adultery. Adultery is when at least one of the people is married to another. And fornication is when neither of the two are married and they still have sexual intercourse. So there's a bit of difference in the meaning, but it's the same, the same sin. Sometimes the heart of the offending person is hard and they sinfully will not do what must be done to reconcile the relationship. They won't confess and repent seriously, come to God for forgiveness and come to their spouse for forgiveness. They won't do that. Sometimes the heart of the offended person is hard and they sinfully refuse to forgive, to reconcile and get past the offense, even when there is contrition and repentance. Often the sin, the hardness of heart is on both sides. As pastor and scholar Don Carson says, divorce is never to be thought of as a God-ordained, morally neutral option, but rather it is evidence of sin, 
of hardness of heart. Now, at this point, I need to make an important aside. To Jesus' permission for divorce spoken here, which is adultery. Added to that, the Apostle Paul added the case of abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. He says, if you're married to somebody who's not a believer and they want to stay in the marriage, you need to let them. And then he says, but if they want to leave, let them go. Let them go. You're not guilty of anything if you do that. We find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. Now, at this point, Jesus' disciples get into the discussion. And evidently, even they have believed that divorce should be an easy-peasy option for a man instead of the sacred bonding of husband and wife that Jesus has just described. Just listen to what they say. Verses, in verse 12, his disciples said to him, this is after he just said how serious, how important it was. They said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. What? Personally, I'm surprised that Jesus, as their teacher and Lord, didn't step on that hard and firmly correct their misunderstanding. Essentially, what they said is, oh, if marriage means a real and a sacred commitment We'd better off, we're better off just to not get married. Does that sound familiar? Have you heard that before? Many times? I have. But you see, Jesus doesn't do that. He's obviously a better man than I am. He doesn't do that directly anyway. Instead, he discusses celibacy. Celibacy is not getting married and therefore never having sex, or at least that's supposed to be what it means. Many people never get married, but they have a lot of sex. And we read about that and have been reading about that for decades now among the clergy, not just of the Roman Catholic Church, but of other churches as well where they're vowed to celibacy, and yet they're engaging in sexual activity. And that's not just priests and pastors. That's nuns as well. Celibacy is supposed to be a lifestyle that may be necessary from birth, it may be forced by men, or it may be voluntary by choice for ministry and full-time focus 
on the Lord. Picking it up in verse 11. But he said to them, this is his response to what they said. He said, all cannot accept this saying, what Jesus had just said in verse 9. But only those to whom it has been given, meaning a divine calling. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So we have these two new words. We have celibacy and we have eunuchs. A eunuch is a male who has been castrated. In other words, he has had his testicles removed. In some cases, they don't do that. They, through surgery, they go in and they cut a number of tubes. It has the same effect. Thus, it makes the male unable to have sex or even sexual desires. The purpose of making a male a eunuch are many, including to be a castrato singer. That's a boy who underwent castration before puberty, usually between the ages of five and eight. In order to retain a singing voice in the upper registers, which made it possible for them to, to sing the, the female voices of printed music. Another purpose that people were eunuchs, were made eunuchs, was to be guardians of women or servants in a harem. We even read about that. Haggai, the king's eunuch in Esther. Chapter 2, verse 3, 8 and 9 and 15. He was the man who helped Esther be prepared to meet the king. And possibly, possibly also, I've read this in a number of places, the Egyptian officer Potiphar may have been a eunuch. There's debate on that, and I don't want to come down on either side. He was married, and that may have been just for court purposes, and it may have been why his wife tried to seduce Joseph, because her husband was a eunuch. The term eunuch can also be used of a man who chooses or is gifted with celibacy without castration in order to focus his life entirely on Christian ministry or other purposes. Jesus mentions eunuchs here in response to his disciples' question, taking them seriously and describing eunuchs in several ways, the last being the honorable state taken by the Apostle Paul 
and by Jesus himself and others. In other words, staying single in order to focus 100% on Christian ministry, such as monks and Roman Catholic priests are supposed to do. We'll read more about that in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, at this point, we leave the discussion of marriage and divorce as Jesus continues walking towards Jerusalem. But immediately, we read of the offspring of marriage, children, and see one of the many examples in Scripture of the wonderful, soft heart of our Lord for children. Verse 13 we read, then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Significantly, the Holy Spirit, the author of the Bible, he made certain that this short but very important event is recorded in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In doing that, God is putting his emphasis here on this little story. And all three were told that the little children, or infants in Luke's gospel, that they were brought to Jesus, we assume by their parents, so that he might touch or lay his hands on them and bless them. That was their parents' purpose. And how very like the love of parents that is. In fact, the laying on of hands is used often in the Bible as a way to bestow blessing on a person. We see it numerous times in the Old Testament, three, four times in the book of Acts, in 1 Timothy, in 2 Timothy, and in James. In fact, it's done today. When somebody is to be ordained as a as an elder, as a pastor, the church lays hands on that person as they ordain them and commit them to the ministry. And it's a beautiful ceremony. I had chills when it was done to me. It is so important that immediately after Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, these parents brought their children to be blessed by Jesus. Today, of course, parents should still bring their children to Jesus. While we can't do it physically yet again, <laughs> We can and should do it daily as we read and discuss the Bible with them 
as well as being sure they're in Sunday school if one is available, or something similar, like Bible camps, weekly youth programs, like Awana. It doesn't have to be in your church. It could be in any fellowship that's trusted by the parents to be faithful in teaching scripture. When our children were growing up, we went to a terrific Bible teaching church. It had many hundreds of ministries. There were 14,000 people in that church. But for some reason, our kids didn't particularly like the youth ministry. And we said, okay, where do you want to go? Not do you want to stop, because that was not an option. But we said, where do you want to go? And they said, you know, a lot of our friends go to Hoffmantown. And I knew the pastor, I knew the church, they were also very large, and they had a terrific youth ministry. And all of our kids spent six years from and maybe seven years from the sixth grade through the end of high school, actively participating in that youth ministry. And they were blessed, and we certainly have been blessed also by that. I believe that was an important reason why our, our three children all came to the Lord eventually. There was, there was some doubt for a while, but... Uh, they all came strongly to the foot of Christ. Where was I? Oh yeah, Awana. Uh, our daughter Kelly is sending our grandson Ecton. He goes to Awana. A-W-A-N-A. -A -A. And just in case you wonder what Awana means, there's a verse in Timothy that says, a worker and not ashamed. A-W-A-N-A. -A. That's what Awana means. And they focus. They focus on salvation. They focus on memorizing scripture. And the kids have a lot of fun doing it. <clears throat> they have contests and all that stuff. The kids love going to Awana. And they learn a great deal about the Bible and about Christ. And Awana, probably more than any other organization outside of Billy Graham's crusades, have led more people to Christ than probably anybody else. Great organization, great ministry. In fact, the practice of making sure your children are taught and raised According to the Word of God, we just read it a few minutes ago. It was commanded by God in Deuteronomy. I'll just read verses 5, 6, and 7 of Deuteronomy chapter 6 that we read earlier. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. 
you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. The Word of God should constantly be in the air, should be in the conversation, should be normally heard throughout the house, and purposely, diligently taught by parents to their children. That's what God says, not just in the New Testament, but very strongly here in the Old Testament. It's a part of the Shema. The Jews pray every morning. And as I said, and they have been doing it for at least 2,500 to 3,000 years. It was already a Jewish custom, by the way, to bring children to the elders on the evening of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and at other times to bless them and pray for them. So bringing their children to Jesus was a very natural thing for parents to do. And yet, the disciples rebuked them. If you'll recall elsewhere, they'd done the same thing to the blind and the lame who wanted to approach Jesus. The disciples rebuked them. Like, no, stay back. Hold on. He's too important for you to come. And Jesus got angry every time. You'd think they would know Jesus' love of children and widows and the weak and helpless by now. I guess they were just kind of slow. And of course, as we'll see after Pentecost, they were no longer slow. They would be filled with the Holy Spirit and completely changed to be powerful ministers of the gospel and be martyred as such, except for John. In all three of those gospels, the central statement of the event is given. Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For such is the kingdom of heaven or of God. Jesus is clearly rebuking his disciples here. I'll read that again because it's so important. Let the little children come to me. That's true today, too. And do not forbid them. We have government and educational institutions that are working very hard to forbid our children from coming to even hear the name of Christ. And do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Then, in Matthew and Mark, we're told that Jesus laid his hands on the children. In Matthew, we're told that then he departed from there. He left and moved on. In Mark, we're told that the disciples' rebuke greatly displeased Jesus. And also in Mark, which 
interestingly, is usually the shorter, abbreviated gospel. We learn that Jesus, quote, took them up in his arms, <clears throat> laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Mark gave the most detailed description of the event, probably because Mark's gospel is understood to be Peter's, because Peter and Mark spent many years together in ministry, and uh, it's understood for the most part that Mark's gospel is through the eyes of Peter. So Peter was right there watching. In both Mark and Luke, Jesus also said, this is very important, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. He's talking to people who think they can argue their way in, who think they can study so much that they'll know so much that they'll earn their way in. Jesus says the opposite. As little children, that means innocent, humble, trusting, and believing. That's what that means. And I pray that every one of you and, and me as well, that that's how we came to Christ. I know I did because just days before, I had been arguing against the Bible, against Christ, and against Christianity. And it's like God just picked me up and slapped me around a little bit, said, listen to me. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. On my knees I went, and I heard, I heard the voice of Christ. Humble? Yes. Innocent? In that case, yes. Trusting? I learned to be. I mean, when I heard the voice of Christ, it was like all of a sudden, oh no, you're real. And I've been wrong for 20 years. Please forgive me, Lord. That was my sinner's prayer, by the way. <laughs> and remember what Jesus said in just the previous chapter of Matthew, Matthew 18, the first six verses. He said, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus <clears throat> saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They were still trying to promote themselves. Then you'll recall Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That's strong. That's very strong. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest 
in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. He said the same thing in Mark. And then we spent some time talking about this one. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus used some very strong language on how we get into heaven and how we should not stand in the way of anyone else getting into heaven. Strong, powerful words from God. See, in these cases, he wasn't just talking as a man. He was speaking as God the Son. And all the authority, the infinite authority that he has as God. Our Bibles, you see, are truly full of examples of God's special love for children. We also read, it mentioned that God has a special place in his heart, not just for children, but for widows and orphans as well. Symbolic, really, of people who are destitute, who have no hope. people who have nothing, especially them, God has that soft spot in his heart. Now we're going to stop here for today with these verses from the Psalms. Psalm 127 verses 3 to 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. A lot of kids is a real blessing, a heritage from the Lord. And it saddens me to hear today so many people, even faithful Christians who get married, who say, no, 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 I want to wait until I, I finish college, or I need to get my career going, or, you know, we need to save up to buy a house, or, you know, we need to do this, or we need to do, do that, and then we'll have kids. You know, that's not God's plan. For a married couple to use birth control is not God's plan. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word, for the strength, for the strength of our Lord Jesus, God the Son, as he speaks to people about marriage, about divorce, and about the importance of children. It's so interesting, Lord, that in that society and in many ways, even in ours, children are, what's the phrase, are to be seen and not heard, which is ridiculous. 
Father, thank you that your word presents children as extremely important. In fact, you present children to us as models of how we and others are to enter your kingdom, are to come to Christ and be saved. They're the models that we need to follow. As always, Lord, you, you're very good at turning our way of life upside down. And I thank you. I thank you for the power of Jesus' words that we've just read. I thank you of the brilliance, which of course is infinite, in our Lord Jesus as he dealt with these ignorant, petty Pharisees. God, you bless us so much with your word. I pray that as we read it, as we must, that we won't read it too fast. Oh, well, may read it as a survey, reading through it in a year. But I pray that we'll also read it to learn, to hear, to listen. Read it slowly. Chew on the words that you've given us to get all the juice out of them that we can. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, as an afterthought, folks, we need to know that throughout the Bible, the terms little children and children are, are frequently used to refer to adults. I found nearly a thousand instances of that. And yes, I looked it up. What's that noise? A dog. Let's mute again. In 1 John, the apostle uses little children many times in referring to the people of the church. And we see children of Israel simply to refer to the people of that nation, to descendants of Jacob, of Israel. In many cases, it is difficult to discern which meaning is intended, child or adult. But the context will usually make it clear. But I needed to make that point to you. And I'll turn the tape off now.